This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You guys have heard me talk about Red Door Grill for almost a year now on 610 Sports Radio, and they're the proud sponsor of the Bobcast. And I'll tell you what, I'm a proud eater at Red Door Grill. In fact, my family and I love going to Red Door Grill, not just on Mondays for burgers or Thursdays for fried chicken, but just about every single day of the week. Because every time we walk into a Red Door Grill location, we're walking out of there feeling satisfied, feeling great, and knowing we got some of the best food in Kansas City. $5 burgers on Monday is where the week starts. You're not going to find a better deal than that. The best burger in town for just $5. You want some fries, it'll cost you a buck more. And then on Thursday, we have the jalapeno-dipped fried chicken. That fried chicken starts marinating on Monday. It marinates on Tuesday. It marinates on Wednesday. It's got the herbs and spices to get into that chicken, and then boom, they flash fry it on Thursday to give you the best fried chicken that you'll ever have. And then, of course, happy hour every weekday, Monday through Friday from 3 to 6. That's where we cash in sometimes on Fridays as well. Enjoy those great drinks. Enjoy the great appetizer specials from 3 to 6 every single weekday at Red Door Grill. And with three locations, there's one close to everybody. 159th and Antioch, 119th and uh, Row in Town Center Plaza in Leewood and Camelot Court. And of course, you can find the location in Brookside as well. It's Red Door Grill. For many years, Kansas City woke up every morning and watched Toby Cook on the local news. For over a decade, Toby's face was on our television sets telling us everything we needed to know as we got ready for the day ahead. And then one day, boom, he was gone, leaving one dream job for another dream job and moving over to the Kansas City Royals, where he's become the vice president, as I say, of all things good. In our latest Red Door Grill Casey Bobcast, we sit down with former television star and current Royals vice president, Toby Cook. If I were to said to you 15 years ago you'd have a World Series ring and another World Series appearance, and you would have said to me, no way in hell, I work on TV doing the Fox Morning News, but now here you are as the vice president of publicity for the Kansas City Royals. How quickly it all changes from going on front of the screen to kind of behind the scenes for everything for the Royals. How's it been for you making that transition and, and finding yourself a new career basically midway through your life? Well, it was fun just to work for a major league baseball team for two or three years. So that um, that made me very excited about being at the Royals, just being around that scene, which was good, because we were not a very good baseball team at the time. I started in 2006, and we were on our way to a 100-loss season again when I started. I was there for the last 20 games of the 2006 season, Bob, but it was just exciting to be there. Then 2007 was my first full year and I needed that full year to get used to what it was like to host 81 home games um, and then at that point I kind of started to figure out the job and we were on an interesting run because we were starting to then sniff out um, renovating the stadium possibly getting an all-star game man I hope that Dayton Moore is building a winner and that really carried us so 
I didn't know that I was going to get a World Series ring, but everything I dreamed about this job eventually came true. Well, I, I think it's interesting because at the beginning part of your career, you mentioned the baseball team wasn't very good. I mean, you were losing a lot of games. Nobody was believing, oh, here comes a new general manager. Why is this going to be different than it has been in the past? And you're dealing with stuff with, like, Slugger at a bachelor party. And you're dealing with all kinds of nonsense off the field. And you're like, why am I dealing with this kind of stuff? Did you ever think you'd have to be going on radio stations talking about why Slugger is giving lap dances at a bachelor party? I didn't think about Slugger and lap dances. I thought about, well, I'm probably going to get asked about uh, an issue in the parking lot or something that happened very, very early on. Um, you and I both know her. Her name is, uh, um, she was Kim Hillix for years. Sure. Uh, went to work for Pepsi after she'd been with the Royals for several years. And she was the marketing person at the Royals. She and Kurt Nelson, who's the director of the Royals Hall of Fame now. And she told the story. And I ended up having to deal with it a little bit too, which was, it was July 4th and the fireworks didn't go off. And this was 2007 or 8. So, mm-hmm. you know, when things are going bad, of course the fireworks aren't going to go off at Kauffman Stadium on July 4th. And we've been telling people, best fireworks in town. You don't need to go to another fireworks display because we've got them. We got rain that day. The fireworks people said, we keep this thing tamped down. Um, it's not going to affect the rain and the fireworks. And then the fireworks didn't go off. And she described it as she sat there in the press box watching the fireworks not go off, knowing that she couldn't do a thing about it, but that she was going to have to answer for it. And... I experienced that because I had no control over the fireworks not going off, but I was taking the bullets the next day for it. July 5th, I think I went on 610 Sports and kind of talked about it. But gradually things got a little bit better and a little bit better. And those bad things that you were talking about, they shone bright. But one thing that helped us was that for a long time, we didn't have in place a plan to show off the good stuff that was happening at the Royals, regardless of what the record was. Um, some teams weren't in the habit of doing that. Since then, we've really gotten to the habit of saying that at the time, John Buck and David DeJesus are out at a special Olympics clinic, or they're making an appearance somewhere, and we started getting news coverage. And I realized that it was because there was nobody there that was pumping up that, and that kind of infused some positivity into an otherwise pretty bleak situation. So, yes, there were moments where I was like, I left television for this. But then there were other times where I thought this is pretty cool that people are excited about having a baseball team in town. Well, and, and I think that that raises an interesting kind of you know conversation that we can dovetail into in a little bit is about the community work that I don't want to say you oversee or anything like that but the the way that the Royals have kind of bonded with this town I mean we saw it firsthand in 14 and 15 what this baseball team meant to this community and even when they're not winning and you guys aren't winning baseball games people still look to the Royals and say hey can you help us out can you help benefit this community and Toby quite honestly that wasn't something that existed before you and Dayton Moore and this current regime of Royals officials got into Kauffman State yeah, I think that's the best part of my job, not only doing good things on behalf of the Glass family for people that are in a bad way, but also the fact that we were able to elevate the club in the community in a way that hadn't been done before. Some of it was that no Major League Baseball club was spending a whole lot of time celebrating their off-the-field matters. It was all about winning and losing. Um, when Dayton started in the summer of 2006, he talked to the organization and he said we're going to be a model organization again in the 
70s and 80s, the team won. Up until the early 90s, you know, Ewing Kaufman died, and that team was basically in ownership in a committee. It was it didn't have an owner before the Glass family took over. And they were a bit of a rudderless ship. They were just kind of moving along, and, you know, the people that were on the committee, they didn't know how to run a baseball team. They were just trying to keep the team in town. Um, and so that early part of the 2000s when the Glass family has admitted, you know, we're baseball fans, and we're glad that we got this team, but we're not baseball people like a Dayton Moore was. They brought him in, and he said, we're going to become well-regarded around Major League Baseball again like this franchise used to be, and it starts with us doing the next right thing day after day in the front office. Because I can't turn this thing around on the field in a couple of years. So we're going to do the good stuff in the front office, and one of them was, as I like to claim... And it's true, there's one Major League Baseball field between here and Denver, St. Louis, Minneapolis, and Dallas. There's not another one. We've got the only Major League Baseball field. So when we have a clinic down on the field for kids from the inner city, or we do something nice for people with disabilities, um, and we had a couple of Major League Baseball players along the kids didn't care that they were 20 games under 500 or 40 games under 500. They were just excited that there was a baseball uh, player there. And we started to kind of plant those seeds. The other thing that happened was that the Glass family really wanted to highlight Royals Charities, which was the team foundation where they raised money and gave it away. Royals Charities existed before the Glass family took over, but it was kind of a name only. It was the baseball card program where they would uh, give cards uh, to first responders, and they would hand it out on the street when they were on patrol. The players would do something nice every once in a while. Dan and Janie Quisenberry back in the 80s started this food drive. That was pretty much it. Now all of these baseball teams have their own community relations departments where that's not just a nice thing that they do on the side. It exists as big of a deal as the marketing department or the ticket office. And when I started, we were about a $300,000 organization. Now we're giving about $2 million a year away. And from 06 to about 13, we were getting better and better and better at connecting with the community. And um, our caravans were uh, well attended. But, man, when we started winning, there was nothing like that. And we just rode the wave at that point. You know, we we were doing good things, and a fair amount of people were noticing. When we started winning and going to World Series – Everybody noticed. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. Everybody wanted the Royals at their event. And so I'm glad that we were ready to to uh, enjoy some of that success. You were able to essentially be one of the few people inside that organization was there from when basically Dayton took over to, to where we are today and have, have been there just about every day. What has been his message from when he took over to where you are now that caused you to believe and say, yeah, I'm following this guy? He said a couple of different things. He said, we're going to be a model organization again with the ultimate goal of winning a world championship. And you remember when in the late 80s, the Chiefs had not gone to the playoffs for a long, long time. And I remember where I was. I was in Lawrence, Kansas, listening on the radio when Carl Peterson and Marty Schottenheimer were introduced as the duo that was going to come in. And both of them said, our goal... And they may have mentioned a, a time frame, but nevertheless, they said it. We want to win a world championship. Well, when you've got a goal, you know, a team that had floundered for so long 
And our goal from this moment up until the point that we do it is to try to reach a point where we win a world championship. That was exciting because we were on a trajectory, you know, from where we were. Dayton had said on many occasions it was almost worse than a expansion team. You know, the the Royals became a ball club in 1969, and I think in many ways they were better off than we were in 2006. He just didn't have anything to work with, so he had to start over. And we just got a little bit better and a little bit better. And he kept talking about, we gotta ha- we have a goal, we're going to act like a, a model organization and all that we do in the front office. And then for the team on the field, all we can do is just build things one day at a time and never take our eye off of that goal and just keep doing it. Do it when there's a goofy story about Slugger in a bad situation. Do it when the fireworks don't go off. Do it when there is a, a some sort of a report about a malfunction at the toll gates and people are upset about it. And as you kept pushing through that, you we saw that it was getting better and better and better at the A ball level and then at the double A level and then at the triple A level. Maybe this thing really is coming to us. Was there ever a time, though, where a lot of people in the front office went, boy, here we go again. This isn't going to work. We're never going to find our way out of this rut. Yes. Two things that I remember. One of them was 2009 when we renovated the stadium and we started off 11 and five. And I, I remember us holding on for dear life to a lead in the ninth inning, and we won for our 11th game. And then we never were the same again after that. We had, we were six games above 500, two and a half weeks into the season. And the season just kind of went south from there. And I think that there was a lot of frustration. Got this new stadium. Uh, we started off really well. And all of a sudden, oh, we're back to uh, building mode. 2010 was different because we had the all-star game to look forward to, and we had that for a few years. And then I remember May of 2013 was the other time. And that was the Dayton Moore calling George Brett and saying, you got to get over here to St. Louis to be our interim hitting coach because we were playing awful. And I think there were a lot of people in the organization and outside the organization that couldn't help but think, we've done everything that we were supposed to do, and here we go again. And things got better in 2013. So those were two of the the memories that I have where we weren't sure that it was going to happen. Well, and then that that St. Louis trip is really where it kind of all turned around for the good. I mean, you you know, you get goosebumps thinking about it right now because that was that rain delay. And Dayton Moore refused to let that game get canceled. And the Royals ended up winning at like 3 or 4 in the morning and then flew to Texas and played that night and kind of took off from there and built some confidence. And that was kind of the line in the sand where a lot in the organization will say, that's the day we stop being pushed around as an organization. I think that's exactly right. And it felt good to know later on in the year that we were likely going to have a winning record. And we may even sneak into the playoffs, although a couple of weeks before the end of the year, you kind of knew that it was it probably wasn't going to happen, but maybe it could. And I think that that was the key. I think May of two. 2013 was the moment where we transformed things. I will say this, that the crazy wild card game in 2014 where where Mike Moustakis and a few others were saying, not tonight, this is, we've come too far, we're coming back, um, was another turning point. And that was a turning point that turned into crazy, where we went on and went to the World Series and then won it the next year. But there were some of those moments in there.
I always like talking to people like you who I find kind of fascinating because you had a great career. You were an anchor on Fox 4, very highly rated morning show. Everybody knew who you were. And then all of a sudden you decided, what, in your, in your 40s maybe, late yeah, 30s, early 38. 40, 38 years old, you're going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give up this very successful television career that I have, and I'm going to change my entire life and my entire career. Where'd you get the stones and the guts to do something like <laughs> I, that? I was, because I think you live a life that a lot of people would like to live, yeah. Toby, you know? Um, I will say this. I must have matured very, very late, and maybe at 38 I wasn't very mature. Um, when the Royals went on that eight-game winning streak in the playoffs in 2014, um, and then we had the audacity to think that we could go back in 2015, because you're not supposed to go back-to-back in World Series. My line was that these guys are young and dumb enough and talented enough to think that they can do it. Oh, we're supposed to win three in a row. Oh, we're supposed to sweep the Baltimore Orioles. Oh, and then they 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 almost won the whole thing in 2014. I must have just been young and dumb enough to think that you could make a, a career switch like that. I was very fortunate, kind of fell into my lap, fell from the sky. It also was um it was it was too good to pass up to see what it would be like. You know, I loved doing television. Um, many people have called this my dream job, and I can't argue with describing it that way, but I was already living my dream. I was Broadcasting was my first love. I still like being around it. I don't like the lifestyle that I had to uh, put up with for 15 years as a television anchor and reporter because it's a, it's a buster. But... Um, but I was probably naive enough to think that I could do something like that and not look back and think, what have I done? I was thinking five years down the road, if I don't do this, I'm going to be looking back and thinking, what have I done? Why didn't I try that? Why did the Royals approach you to come work in their, in their I guess you could say their publicity department and be the vice president of publicity for them? I call you the vice president yeah. of all things good, but it seems like, 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 how does that happen where one day you you know, you know pick up the phone or you, you bump into somebody and they go, how would you like to come be a vice president for us? Well, that's kind of how it happened over a two-year period. I got a call out of the blue from a woman you'll remember uh, named Ginger Salem, who was Dan Glass's executive assistant. And she said, we'd like to know if you want to come out and emcee a Royals Charities event. It was called Baseball and Blues, and it was held down in the Crown Club. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like, wow, the Royals are calling me. Because, you know, television is really cool. Mm -hmm. It's a great job, and it looks a whole lot more impressive than it is when you're actually doing it. So I was just this kid that was like, wow, the Royals are calling me. And she said, the reason why we want you to come and emcee this Royals Charities event is because you always say nice things about the club on TV. (laughs) And they were a bad, bad baseball team at the time. But I remember the 70s and 80s growing up with them, and I always believed that they would get good again. And so I would say good things. And there were people in the media landscape that were knocking them around pretty good. And I was one of those guys that was always positive about them. I knew that they weren't a very good baseball team, but I was just having fun on the morning show. Sure. So the late, great Don Harmon was doing the weather on Fox 4, came back, and he said, So, Toby, um, what's happening tonight at the K? He would serve it up, and I would say, Well, tonight is when we end our eight-game losing streak, and you should go out and watch the Royals. So they asked me, and I had a blast. I knew all the players by heart. Um, I worked with no notes and... They asked me if I would come back the next year, 
And the next year at uh, the Royals Charities event, Dan said to me, you know, if you ever get tired of the TV thing, I think you might be a good candidate for this position I want to create, which was exactly what I described, which was a guy who believed in the organization that had some credibility in town but had the relationships with people in the media that was going to go brag about him. Because Lord knows the Dan and David Glasses of the world, they don't like to get in front of the camera and brag about their family. But if somebody else will do it, um, that's what they hired me for, and that's kind of how that came about. What was the single biggest challenge you faced when you took that job? And maybe you're still facing it today some 13-plus years into this job. Now, what's the biggest challenge you're facing? Well, the two the two things that I face are an ownership that does not love being out in front of the organization. And I say that as a compliment to them for this reason. Dan told me first and foremost, my family has been very blessed. We're tickled that we have a baseball team in town. We want to do good things for people, whether a television camera shows up or not. But we also want people to know about it. So we're not going to brag about it, but you need to go out and make sure that we're on TV and we get covered. And a lot of folks wonder about the glass family not mixing it up with the movers and shakers in town and i've been around the organization long enough to know that it's just not their style and i really really appreciate working for an organization that wants to do the right thing on behalf of people because it's the right thing not because it's going to get them good pr um i'm not naive enough to think that they're that i could be in another sports team where they're doing it because it's PR, Mm -hmm. good PR first. I really, really like that. The other challenge, and this is probably wrapped up with the whole small market, we don't have as many resources as other organizations have, is early on, and I'm, I'm very happy about this, that I feel like we have won back from the fans the benefit of the doubt, at least for a while, Um, we didn't have the benefit of the doubt from 2006 to going to the World Series. So I was battling with that all the time. Something good would happen. The individuals that we were doing nice things for would appreciate it, but the fan base at large was like, "Eh, well, why don't you go out and go get some starting pitching? (laughs) When we would do this unbelievably good thing for um, an organization. And we had to fight through that for a long time. That was a big, big challenge where people were like, yeah, we know the... World Series 1985, um, they were still getting awards in the front office uh, for front office of the year in 1992. Um, a, ten years later, we're on Letterman and Leno often as the butt of jokes. And for those first several years, we did not have the benefit of the doubt of the fans. And, and that was hard. Yeah, and, and now I think obviously you do have the benefit of the doubt. You win a World Series, you win a championship, you do kind of get that benefit of the doubt, but it's not just you out there doing the good stuff in the community. You guys have done an awesome job of getting the players on board, whether it was Eric Hosmer when he was here or Danny Duffy when he's here now doing the things that he's doing. It seems like anytime you need something, you just look to a player and say, hey, can you be here? And I'm speaking from personal experience. Hey, I need you at this. I want you at this. I need this. And everybody's so quick to jump and help and to contribute to this community. And I think that's now why and what will, if you're not winning games, keep the Royals top of mind and keep the Royals relevant and keep the Royals love in this community because people know when they need something, they can count on you guys. How have you been able to spread that word to the players to get them to buy into what you guys are doing? Well, it starts with Mike Swanson, who's our vice president of communications and broadcasting. Swanee 
will get with the players when they're in rookie ball and low A ball and say your your best bet when you get to the major leagues is to be a friend of the community. Now, that sounds like he's got to convince them. We're in a era of baseball right now, I feel, where the generation of players that are playing are just really good guys. It wasn't always that way, and I've seen my share of ball players that they just want to play ball and get a paycheck and sure. they don't want to be bothered. Now they will mm-hmm. they'll show up. We go into the clubhouse and they say we got some kids out here to do this and they'll walk out and they're very very good with them at that moment, but it's not you can tell that it's not it, it's not something that's uh, part of their heart and soul. This is generation of the last this core group of guys that came up and won a World Series and then this group that we have right now, they're very community minded. They get it. They get they got it early on. And when they get up to the major leagues, they're not forgetting it, which I've seen players forget it. They get there and they're like, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And we have many, many more guys who get their responsibilities to the community than don't. Um, the other thing that might weave into this a little bit, and this is a genera- generational thing, is the social media aspect of the players, you know, for a while, it's been transitioned from traditional media and how I do my job to we've got to tweet Instagram, Facebook, Snap, everything now, and we need the players to participate. Well, they're doing it on their own. They've all got their own accounts, and they're posting, and most of them don't have to be told, hey, you can't post that. What are you doing? They they, they get it as well. Those two things seem to be working hand in hand. And so if it drives them a little bit to show up to a community event so they can then post something, we'll take it. You you guys, obviously, with the World Championships and the World Series, you've experienced a lot of cool things. Everybody has seen that. What's the coolest thing you've been able to experience from a community standpoint that maybe nobody knows where you had a moment where you saw something like, wow, I can't put a price tag on this? I I have one thing that was personal that didn't have anything to do with Royals Charities or an a, an event that we were hosting, but it was my favorite moment in either of the postseasons, and it was Game 4 of the American League Championship Series against Baltimore when we were about ready to go to the World Series. And we had a one-run lead going into the top of the ninth, and I went down uh, not far from the f- uh, foul pole on third base where a bunch of the families were sitting, a bunch of the Royals families were sitting, and I wedged in. I didn't even have a seat. I wedged in between my wife and my son who were there, and there was a gentleman who was sitting um, in one of the seats who just had this strange look on his face. And I was introduced to him by the person that brought him, and it turns out he was blind. Couldn't see a thing. And had experienced the entire game uh, without seeing what was happening but was kind of picking up on what was happening from the crowd and from the PA announcer and all of that. Well, not making this up, this kid who wanted to be a play-by-play announcer for the Royals when, since I was eight years old, got to meet Denny Matthews and Ryan Lefevre, got to meet Fred White before he died. Um, I ended up doing play-by-play for this guy that I hadn't met, and it was the most meaningful, wonderful moment that I've had with the Royals where I told him, Ball's a little low and inside. I was probably making it up because I couldn't see uh, great from where I was standing. So you were a typical announcer yeah, exactly. making things up, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I saw that he fouled it off, and I was telling him what was happening. 
And I and at the same time, I was getting this overwhelming sense of joy from when I was a little kid. Dayton and Ned have talked about it. When the guys are playing their best, they're playing like they are little kids just having a, a game. And I was getting that joy of we are two outs away from going to the World Series. We we didn't get to the playoffs for 29 years, and we barely – I mean, we just got in a, a couple of days ago. We're one out away from going to the World Series and I was able to tell him that, and I don't know that I made the call on the last out, but he knew because the place went nuts. And that was a, that was an extremely wonderful moment. And to carry it out about 30 more minutes, Barbara, my wife, um, had to get home because she had to go pick up some kids. And so I walked her about 10 minutes after the game. I walked her out to the uh, parking lot, and she got in the car. And it was like the fourth inning out there in the parking lot. There was nobody there. Everybody stayed in the stadium to watch the post-game recognition up on the uh, stage that they pulled out. Lorenzo Cain was the ALCS MVP. That was my favorite moment, and it also had this very personal moment with this guy uh, that um, I've since been reacquainted with, and, and we're doing something with him in a group called Alpha Point where they work with people with visual disabilities um, but that was a, a very, very cool moment. What was your final out call? You don't I don't have a clue. <laughs> Everybody just started screaming. Yeah, huh? they all started screaming. What was his reaction like? He 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 teared up. He he teared up, and I, I think that it was, you know, he came from Iowa. I don't remember exactly the story, but his friend brought him down, and he was overwhelmed that it was all happening, and maybe just a little bit frustrated because he obviously couldn't see what was going on yeah. but he didn't you know there's a lot of people that bring radios into the stadium and they listen sure. to them and that would have been a good thing but um I got to be his play-by-play announcer do you do you do you guys realize and I Dayton's told me no to this every time I ask him and yep. I ask him a lot and he, and he always answers no do you realize the difference that you guys made in 14 and 15 with people in the community do you, do you quite understand the difference that this organization made for people I do um and not to contradict him but having grown up with this team and I don't think it's contradicting him. I just don't think like certain guys, and, and especially on the baseball side, they don't realize how yeah. much that truly meant to people and what that did for people. You know, people people use the Royals to fight cancer. For gosh sakes, yeah. I mean, like like you guys were driving people to stay alive on a daily basis because they didn't want to miss what was going to happen next. Yeah, the craziest stories I would hear would be about people who were flying into Kansas City for the World Series who didn't have tickets and had no intention of going out to the ballpark they were all just coming home to hang out at the house six or seven of them with their family to watch it on tv because they all wanted to be together and i think that that says a lot toward what it meant to the organization it was a sense of pride you know kansas city the downtown area has come alive in the last few years i think the royals played a big part in this city becoming the city that it is now Mm -hmm. versus 10 and 15 years ago when I came to work for Fox 4 in 1998, I would do live shots early in the morning or late at night downtown, and it was dead as can be, and now it's alive. I think the Royals sort of helped to bring it to where it is. I could see why Dayton or somebody that comes – I could see why a Ben Zobris doesn't know why, what it meant to the organization when he was here for a few months. But for me, having seen what baseball meant to Kansas City when I was a kid – and hearing and saying to people, you just wait. You wait until this team is good. This place is going to go. 
This place is going to go nuts. I will say this. I didn't – it went more nutty than I even thought it was yeah. going to. It, it exploded in a way that I, maybe I didn't anticipate. I, I don't think there's a way to explain to anybody. If you weren't here, it's hard to explain to people mm-hmm. like what exactly went on in that run in 14 and 15. And, and, and I always tell people the baseball was great, but baseball was kind of in the background for what was taking place in Kansas City. And we as a city believed in ourselves. We started to feel good about ourselves. And I think that happened because of the Royals. If the Royals don't win, who knows if we're wearing these shirts with hearts that say KC in the middle of them. And if people have the affinity for Kansas City, as we do today, if the Royals never won. I I really think the Royals helped all of us grow up and believe in ourselves again. Yeah, and because baseball, you have to have a baseball team to watch and you have to have enough wins to people keep people interested, and then these storylines start to form. But ultimately, what having a professional sports team in town does is bring people together from all sorts of walks of life that would otherwise not spend a whole lot of time together, Mm -hmm. and that's exciting. And I think baseball is unique because of the way that it's set up. The three-and-a-half-hour games – or the four-hour games, which are too long, but the two-hour and 59-minute games – you know what you do? You go in, you have some concessions, you sit and talk for a while. It gets exciting for a little bit. Then you're it, it it's conducive to having people come together. And if if the country is as split up as it's ever been politically, economically, religious or anything else division-wise, the great thing about a baseball game is that all of those people come together and they've got something uh, in like to cheer for. Yeah, there used to be a guy that works in the building, and and he was not from Kansas City. He only stayed here for about two years, and, and he said, I, I've never seen anything like this. Like, Democrats and Republicans <laughs> are getting along, and nobody cares who you voted for or anything like that. Yeah. Everybody's just happy. And the Royals winning changed the mood of, mm-hmm. of this Without city, a doubt. too. You know? No, I agree. I I think that it would have been fantastic for the Chiefs to go to the Super Bowl and then win the Super Bowl. I'm a baseball guy. The Chiefs are my favorite football team. I watch them every game. Um, But I just think that there's something special about baseball and the way that baseball is played, both the individual game and then the series, the best of five or the best of seven, that just, it, 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 you're right. It was a mood lifter to Kansas City that uh, nobody could describe, but everybody could feel. Yeah, then that's a good way to put it. What you know, we we all have great stories from those two years, and you, and you look back and you and you think about some of the great moments, and a lot of it for me is is much more the off the field stuff than it is the on the yeah. field stuff. But the on the field stuff gave us the opportunity to do the off the field stuff. What is your favorite moment from that run as a person who worked inside that Royals organization? Well. The one that I just described was my favorite, so I will tell a second favorite moment, and that was um, a few seconds after Salvador Perez hit the game-winning single in the wild card game um, against the Oakland A's. So we're down. They say that we're going to come back in the dugout. We end up tying the ball game. They take the lead in the top of the 12th inning. There's one out in the bottom of the 12th inning. Um, Eric Hosmer hits a triple off the wall in left center field, which is kind of a forgotten moment really is, yeah. in postseason, but it's the reason why maybe we got to two World Series. And then we end up winning it, and I'm there with my son, Adam, 
and who's in college now, and his friend Dylan. Ground ball down the left field line, base hit. That's going to score the winning run. The place goes nuts, and the first person I hug is Adam's friend Dylan <laughs> because he's the closest to me. Right. Then I hug Adam while I'm stepping on Dylan's feet. Then I hug some drunk guy as he's running down the uh, concourse. Then our HR person and people were high-fiving and hugging each other, and they did not know each other up until that moment. Yeah. Or maybe they did because they were standing close to each other, although this this communal and crazy hug was going on between um, sections of the stadium and high-fiving each other. And that was a pretty special moment. I mean, you can't obviously have the moment that I was talking about in Game 4 of the Baltimore series if we didn't win the wild card. And I'll tell you this, I was sitting in the press box when Ned Yost made the pitching change in the middle of the game and brought in, was it Jordana Ventura? Yes, it was, yeah. In in the fifth inning or something and gave up the three-run home run. And I was like, that's going to live all off-season and beyond. And then when that got all erased, um, that was quite a relief. It was, that was, that was something else. The the game forward just because of the magic that was swelling up of we're not only in the playoffs but we're going to the World Series that was something but the wild card game is what people talk about. Do you have an untold story that you've never shared with anybody? No, you've shared everything. I think I've shared everything. Yeah, you're um, an open book on this one. Yeah, huh? why wouldn't you be though? But some people yeah. have those stories. You know, I never told anybody this, but you know, and they've got. I I held on to the. Um, doing play-by-play for the guy who couldn't see for himself for about six months. And then somebody just asked me uh, what my favorite memory was, and I told it. Uh, but, no, I can't think of anything that I have not uh, said. You know, there were a lot of private moments um, that have happened with the Royals, which is another reason why I like working for the Glass family, is they love doing stuff for people without anybody knowing about it. Um, Sam Mellinger wrote a really nice article after we did this in 2000, remember what year it was when um, Caleb Schwab was killed at Schlitterbahn and the family, uh, Mike Swanson and I were able to arrange a meet and greet with a bunch of players several weeks after that had happened and we didn't tell a soul about it until Sam wrote about it several uh, months later. And those kind of little things have happened time and time again. But in terms of uh, the playoffs, I think I've, I've told it all. Yeah, and, and, and you look at the Glass family and, and, and people, they're, they're kind of a, you know, they're not well-known, if you will, in yep. Kansas City. And I, I don't know that there's anything wrong with that because you hate a horn tutor. You, yes. know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, oh, you're doing, you're, you're, you're promoting yourself again. And in baseball and in sports, it's really not about us. It's about giving to them and helping out and doing things. Like, if, you, if you're doing it for attention, mm-hmm. you're probably doing it for all the wrong reasons. And that's Dan Glass to a T, who gave his MVP seats away this past weekend to a family that was going through a rough stretch. And, I don't know that he'll hear this podcast, but probably won't be happy that I mentioned it, although I've done it a few times where I've kind of called him out after the fact. Um, there, I mean, just it's almost instinctive when I will say something about how we'd like to do this, and Dan or um, through Dan, his, the chairman, will say, well, just do this, and you don't need to mention it to anybody. Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. It's 
it's the opposite of Horn Tutor, and it's it's very fun to it's very fun place to work because of that. What is next? What is the next big thing you guys want to accomplish from an off the field standpoint? Um, I think that after they figure out the television deal, which I'm not involved in, I'm going to find out probably about ten minutes before everybody else does. Um, the big thing is to figure out. This is also something that I'm not involved in, but I hear about. I think the big thing is to to get settled on. Do we renovate Kauffman Stadium? Is there a new stadium in in the offing? Um, because baseball is going to change. It's changed in the last twenty years. It's going to change in the future. We've got gaming now. Who knows how that's going to affect things? We people watch the game the way in a different way than they used to when they would sit down and watch television. And I think that that's something that is going to have to be figured out. And then from Dayton's standpoint, we would say that they're trying to build a consistent contender on the field. And we built a contender and they had a winning season in 13, 14 and 15 should have had one in 16, but finished 500. Should have had one in 17, finished below 500. Dayton's been asked, now that you've been through it, what would you do different? And I think his answer has kind of consistently been, I'm going to build a winner, but our goal is to not have these sharp drop-offs before we're back again. You know, I think it, I think it hurts that we were n- that we weren't in the playoffs in 16 and 17 because it increases the amount of time between 2015 and when we're back again. Sure. So there, it feels like we've dipped for longer than we should have. But I, I think that winning for a stretch and then redeveloping the team for a very short amount of time before winning again is something that they would like to create. Um, so I think that from a structural standpoint, where are we going to be playing baseball and can we be that consistent contender that we set out to be is what we have to accomplish. Good. Thank you. Many of us sit around in our early to mid-40s or maybe even our 50s wondering what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. Toby has proven even though you may be older in life and advanced in your career, it never hurts to take that jump to follow your dream. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law.